This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Wednesday, the 1st of February. What have we got for you today? Well, it is petrol price day in the UAE. 10% increase at the pumps when you're filling up your car. Going to get reaction to that and staying with oil. OPEC meeting today. Fed meeting today. So we're going to preview all of that with a range of experts, including Ed Bell of Emirates NBD. Then we're going to be talking about tomatoes, 14 different varieties of them being grown in the UAE and now also in Saudi Arabia. Sky Kurtz is the man behind them, Pure Harvest Smart Farms. He has just done a deal in Saudi Arabia. And finally, talking about passports, there's a big brouhaha in Cyprus about people paying for passports. Jeffrey Henseler, the man with a 400,000 dirham gold watch, joins us in the studio from Passport Legacy to give us the details. All that to come. First up, though, let's dive straight into those big economic and energy stories. We're talking prices and where they could be going, whether that is fuel or mortgages. big local story of the day is the rise in petrol prices here in the UAE. Uh, we've got special and super up around 10%. We've got diesel up around 3%. And uh, we've been comparing that, obviously, to the oil price this morning. We've got an economist coming up in 20 minutes who's going to tell us the what's. He's going to tell us what it means for us, what it means for inflation, how much fuel actually is as a percentage of the CPI inflation basket that's measured here in the UAE. Mm. But we're going to get the whys first from one energy expert. He being Matt Stanley, uh, former oil broker, now partnership lead and the Middle East version, branch even, of the data company Kepler. They look after an awful lot of oil data, ships going where, how much, who, etc. And we wanted to know from Matt, how much of a surprise was this petrol price rise? Not really a surprise. I mean, crude oil prices have been relatively steady this month, down about 5%, but it's, it's those gasoline refining margins. You know, what's happened with China opening back up, what's happening with economic sentiment in general. You know, gasoline refining margins have doubled in the last month alone. So that's obviously caused gasoline prices to go up, even though it's not moving linear with crude oil. Gasoline stocks are also very, very low across the world, especially in the US Gulf Coast at the moment. And we're coming into really when people start stockpiling for driving season. So yeah, unfortunately, it could um, continue this path for the rest of the year. Depends what happens on, on crude. All right, so what is going to happen on crude? We've got an OPEC meeting towards the end of the week. And the question is, will they keep things steady? For February, I think OPEC will play a very cautious game. Start of the year, they usually do, and see what's going on with markets. The demand that's data that will come trickling from China regarding Chinese New Year, if there was a, a, a leap up in demand uh, data from that. So I think it will be a rollover of current production quotas. But I think it will be all eyes on what happens with the OSPs, the official selling prices that the GCC core distribute for this month if they see that Europe needs barrels, because obviously what's happening with the ban on Russian oil imports, crude oil imports from December, will they increase OSPs there because the demand is there? Or will they look at where India and China are currently buying their barrels because they have ramped up oil imports from Russia heavily over the last few months? 
So I think it's all a wait and see game. But yeah, I don't see any any change in OPEC output quotas for, for this month at the next meeting. So there you go, Matt Stanley thinks they're going to continue with the cuts that they made at the end of last year. We'll get Ed Bell, the economist's take on it, in about a quarter of an hour here on the Business Breakfast. But it's not the only big meeting this week because today, Rich, is Fed Day. It is indeed. About 10 o'clock tonight, UAE time, the Federal Reserve will announce its decision on interest rates. We are expecting a 25 basis points increase which is not pausing on interest rate rises, but is significantly slow. I guess the the thoughts now of Hank Potts, market strategist at Barclays Private Bank, who's based in London, but is in Dubai at the moment and has been speaking to the business breakfast. We asked Hank very simply, what will the Fed do today? Inflation has been moderating in the United States. If you go back to the December report, CPI fell one-tenth of one percent month on month. Doesn't sound like much. Remember, that's the first decline that we've seen in two and a half years. Should remember the annual rate is still at six and a half percent. That's still elevated. It's still more than three times the official target level, but has been decelerating for six consecutive months, now back to its lowest level since October 2021. The good news around inflation is that goods inflation has been significant significantly weakening on the back of elevated inventory levels, an increase in terms of capacity, a relaxation in some of those restrictions. I think when you look at other factors, well, the reality is tighter monetary policy inevitably result in terms of a moderation in terms of demand. Labour markets, we think, will come into better balance. Remember, the Federal Reserve were incredibly aggressive in terms of hiking interest rates during the course of last year. Seven consecutive increases to the tune of 425 basis points. But we do think we're coming towards the end of that hiking cycle in the United States. Hank Potts of Barclays coming to the end of the hiking cycle. Yeah, we're going to get, as I said, the economists' take on what we could see. And tomorrow, of course, we have our property section with Hauser, and we're going to find out for them what the interest rate decision to make today, smart money on the 25 basis points rise, could mean for mortgages and for appetite in the real estate sector here in Dubai going forward. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. And speaking of commodities, commuters set to pay nearly 10% more at the pump this month. We are very pleased to be joined by Ed Bell. Senior Director of Market Economics at Emirates NBD. Ed, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. So after a lovely fall in fuel prices, we are heading back up. Why do we think this is? Yeah, we've had about a almost 10% increase in you know petrol prices and what most people be paying for just sort of mid-grade and, and higher octane fuels. I think there is an anticipation and the, the price change is a reflection of what could be some disruption in refined product markets going forward. Next week, we have a pretty uh, momentous uh, change in the structure of the way refined products are changing with an EU embargo on imports of Russian refined fuels and also plans to implement a price cap on those exports as well, similar to what the G7 and the EU countries did on Russia's crude oil exports back in uh, the start of December. So while the exports are still coming out of Russia, there has been some friction and some disruption, and that's probably going to be reflected in the refined product space as well. And I think with the anticipation that we could have that kind of uh, that kind of friction and those kind of issues going forward, it leads to anticipation of a tighter refined products market, and hence we're getting a little bit of a bump up in the gasoline prices. And do we take from that that rises may continue? Yes, potentially. If you also have um, so if you have this ongoing disruption to the kind of uh, normal flow of products around the world, but then also you have, in our view, which is an underlying positive story for crude oil prices this year. Those combined together could potentially keep 
uh, retail fuel prices on an elevated trend on a month-on-month basis. Particularly, we'd be worried about that in the second half of the year when overall oil market balance balances looks like they're going to tighten quite a bit. Where are we when it comes to what we pay at the pump in comparison to the US or, or Europe? How closely are we tracking both? Sure. So the prices here do track or have tracked uh, sort of headline oil prices. So when you talk about the Brent price or the WTI price, there is a correlation with the retail field prices here, similar to what we see in um, the US or the UK or, or Eurozone or other big economies. The big distinction, though, is that when you look at retail fuel prices in other markets, enormous component of that is going to be tax. Uh, so it's not quite a like-for-like comparison in terms of what we're looking at when we talk about a retail fuel, a, you know, a, a liter of gasoline here or a gallon of gas uh, in the United States. So it's not exactly the same. Um, generally, things are going to be cheaper here because we're not having that tax component in our fuel prices. Well, let's have a look at what it could mean for the cost of living. How do you calculate what something like a 10% increase in, in petrol prices mean for inflation? Uh, gasoline and diesel, they get lumped into what's com- called the uh, the transport uh, part of the CPI basket. And that has about a 9% weighting in the overall basket for Dubai inflation. And we saw that component increase by about 22% last year, year on year. So a very sharp increase in the cost of uh, retail fuels or what people are putting in the tank when they're, they're driving around um, the Emirate. Uh, So when we get this kind of a month-on-month change, that's certainly going to feed through to higher costs on a monthly basis. When we look at it on an annual basis, um, the increase is not as stark. So we're only up about 4% year-on-year from where retail fuel prices were in January 2022. So the uh, headline that the year-on-year headline increase won't look as bad as the 10% increase that we're getting on a month-on-month basis. But nevertheless, this is going to allow for inflation to remain kind of sticky at the levels that we saw last year. We're also going to change to the CPI basket and how it's made up here in the UAE rather than Dubai coming. What do we know about how they do that? Do they do what they do in the UK and other countries, which is swap goods in and swap goods out, swap in streaming subscriptions, for example, and get out of MP3 players? Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, inflation is a very kind of uh, a living economic statistic, right? As as changes in consumption happen, as you say, you know, it's not really worth um, surveying the cost of what a typewriter is, right? Um, but those kind of legacy issues sometimes do percolate through into CPI baskets uh, around the world. So they do need to be constantly revised and refreshed to make sure that they accurately reflect current consumption patterns. So that'll be done by surveys by the central bank or statistics agencies and making sure that the basket that they're getting reflects price growth, the mo- uh, price conditions the most accurate for a sort of average basket of consumption. Okay, well, let's look at the two big meetings that we've got this week. Fed up first tonight. Uh, A lot of people are expecting to see a bit of a slowdown in terms of the pace of interest rate rises. What do you think? Yeah, we expect that the Fed is going to move forward with a 25 basis point hike this this time. Uh, that will be slower than the 50 basis points we got in um, December and the 75 basis points that we got over a string of meetings uh, across 2022. Now, conditions in the U.S. economy are starting to show signs of slowing down, but they're also showing signs that prices are easing as well. So actually last night we had the Employment Cost Index, which is a probably a more robust measure of wage growth in the U.S. economy. 
and it showed that wages increased by just 1% quarter on quarter for Q4. So a little bit of a backward looking one, but still nevertheless a pretty reliable indicator that wage pressures are starting to slow down. And so those kind of measures will allow the Fed to justify moving to a 25 basis point hike. I think the market is well positioned to absorb that as well. What we're going to be watching out for most closely, though, is the commentary that comes out along with it. So while we're getting a slower pace of hikes, we may get comments from Fed Chair Jerome Powell saying that, well, we are slowing down, but we're not stopping. So we could be setting up for a string of 25 basis point hikes, or we get up to, say, 5% or 5.25%, and the Fed is prepared to hold rates at those levels, even if the disinflation story in the States uh, continues to hold and prices continue to slow down. What does it mean for us in terms of 25 basis points? What would that mean for our real estate market? Uh, What would that mean, for example, for business growth? Sure. So we are still going to be feeling the impact of the 425 basis points of interest rate hikes that happened last year in the US that we imported directly into the monetary policy here and that would be passed through. Uh, the commercial banking sector into corporate loans, into mortgages, into credit card um, kind of kind of bills, auto loans, that kind of thing. So everything, anytime you need to borrow money for investment, for consumption, it is going to be that much more expensive. There may be a lagging impact of it, but I think if we get to the midpoint of the year and say base policy rates in the United States are, for argument's sake, 5%, we may be even a little bit higher here uh, in terms of what your average borrower would be enduring, particularly in the housing market. Market. So that will raise the cost of financing a mortgage considerably, particularly even for those who have existing mortgages that are floating, they'll be paying those higher rates as well. So it can contribute to a bit of a slowdown at the margins. Overall, we still have a pretty optimistic outlook for the uh, economy here in Dubai and in UAE in 2023. But those are certainly going to be a headwind to growth in this year. And let's look ahead very quickly. I've got less than a minute with you to the OPEC meeting at the end of the week. What kind of decision do you expect OPEC to make about production? Yes, we don't have a full OPEC meeting. We have the kind of advisory agency or advisory body of OPEC plus the Joint Ministerial Monitoring Committee, to use its uh, its wonky name. Uh, basically, we think they're going to be looking at the oil market as it stands right now and say that now is not really the time for them to be coming in with more or less uh, barrels into the market and probably keep production steady as they stand right now and watch out for more substantial developments uh, on the consumption side, particularly as China reopens and integrates back more into the oil market. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. That is Ed Bell, Senior Director of Market Economics at Emirates MBD. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Maybe we should be looking at a kilogram of tomatoes instead of looking at the gold price because uh, my next guest is growing an awful lot of them and leafy greens and strawberries in Saudi Arabia. The UAE uh, hydroponic farm company Pure Harvest Smart Farms signing up with Saudi's National Agricultural Development Company in order to help with the kingdom's food security. It's a big, big deal. And we've got Sky Kurtz, founder and chief executive of Pure Harvest Smart Farms, in the studio with us. Sky, it's lovely to see you. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. Always great to see you. How big a deal is this? Uh, It's quite exciting for us and I believe for the Saudi people. I mean, we currently built a farm just over a year ago that's been in the market for over nine months now that was really a commercial pilot at at over 5 million kilos a year. So a huge amount of production of of over 15 varieties of tomatoes. 
We're now partnering with Nautic as part of their new vision, their, their strategy, which is aligned with the Vision 2030. But they're diversifying into many other categories, including fresh produce, and we'll be helping them to farm, supplying a wide variety of produce. And in this current uh, new build, it'll be 21 hectares, but with discussions for, of course, future expansion. So for us, it's very exciting as Pure Harvest Smart Farms and building our Saudi presence and serving a big market but also supporting Nautic in what is an exciting vision toward its food security initiatives and, and farming within the country of Saudi. Okay, let's try and put this in some sort of context then. How much of its own food does Saudi Arabia produce at the moment and how much can you level that up? Well, so Saudi produces more than, say, the UAE does, partly because it has a better climate, obviously an immense amount of land and, uh, and groundwater historically. However, it has sim- similar challenges that we face declining water quality and availability of groundwater, and the, the, the climate is still harsh. So they're still doing seasonal farming. So in the summers particularly, they're importing Im- immensely. And in fresh produce, it depends on the category, but it's certainly over half, right? But they're not as food insecure as we were historically in, in um, fruit and veg. So this is going to be a meaningful contribution. I mean, it will, will be well over 20 million kilograms in, in just the current builds. And to give a context, that's, you know, roughly two-thirds of a kilo per person in Saudi Arabia, right? And that's just in the first phase of builds. So it's, we'll be able to reach a huge portion of the population. And, and our partner, Nautic, is incredibly strong. They access the entire country. They work with every major retailer and hotel, restaurant, catering channel, serving dairy and cheese and other products. But of course, now leveraging that distribution platform, their trusted consumer brand, and helping us to reach the, the consumers in a rapid fashion. Okay, and given the population of Saudi Arabia, that is substantial if you're, you're doing that much per person. How long is it going to take to get to that scale? Uh, it'll take about a year, uh, so it's not too long. We're able to design, procure, construct, and operationalize these farms anywhere from 9 to 14 months, depending on the scale and the complexity. What's really great also about our partner, Nadek, on the existing site, they have a, they've a, you know been focused on their own sustainability, and they built a 30-megawatt captive solar power plant. That plant was built with NG. We are actually plugged into solar power powering that farm. And we actually talked about that here once almost a year ago. But the farm that we're currently operating is heavily powered by solar, and we'll be able to leverage uh, that, that existing infrastructure for these new builds. So because a lot of it's already there, we're able to move quite quickly. Not to mention, it's a huge campus that they have in Nadek City with housing and water technical infrastructure, et cetera, all of that available to accommodate our needs. So what does all of that mean for the cost of food in, in Saudi Arabia and the, and the cost of living? Well, I, th- I believe it, we're, similar to here, we're able to produce higher quality produce with no pesticides at a much lower cost than comparable imports. And so it allows us to establish, like we have here in the United Arab Emirates, we've already done this together with Nadek, but we'll be able to grow the category of premium local. So a very high quality, safe and sustainable, year-round, always available product, but that's sold at a much greater discount than similar products that would be imported. But it is at a premium to local seasonal field-grown product of a different quality level. But for the category we're in, this new category, it's massively cheaper than what they're buying from markets like Tunisia, Morocco, France, um, Spain, Holland. And so it's a, it's a big savings for the people, but also a greater variety a bit of national pride, of course, it's your own produce farmed in your own lands. And again, a huge diversity of, of uh, we're producing even now 15 varieties of tomatoes, many of which weren't even in the market before we entered the market, much like we've seen here in the United Arab Emirates with our entry and partnership with all the key retailers here.
Or you've invited us down to see your farms in, in Alain. What's the next stage for moving this kind of food production into cities so that we don't have to drive to, to Alain to, to come and see what you're, you're, what you're doing so that it's closer to where it's actually going to be used? Well, so interesting you say that. We, we First of all, we all have capabilities to deploy vertical farms, which are much smaller and uh, you know fully artificially lit systems that allow us to grow things like leafy greens economically. We'll be deploying a few of those. You'll see those closer to cities. But for large to larger you know, commercial high-tech greenhouses, what we call our hybrid system, we are in discussions with a few parties, for example, to build uh, with a mall. We can build on rooftops, for example. And a huge benefit of that is we then shield the sun from the structure itself. So we absorb a lot of its energy, reducing its air conditioning bill, and we can leverage existing infrastructure. So, for example, there's a major uh, mall here in the country that has a large mechanical cooling infrastructure. We could utilize that existing infrastructure when it's quote-unquote sleeping and be able to leverage that for our cooling demands instead of building additional capacity of, of air conditioning. And these types of innovative integrations is what we hope to do going forward. We have not yet secured a partnership for one of those projects, but we think it'd be really interesting. It would drive awareness. You could put F and B contemporaneous with that, right? You could have uh, restaurants, for example, backed up against the greenhouses. And people have done builds like this on the rooftops in Holland. They've done them in Iceland. We want to bring one here to the United Arab Emirates or within the region. So what needs to happen for that to happen? What's the stumbling? block. Why aren't you already doing this? Well, in the end, it's our, our partners need to be committed to give us their rooftop, not to mention support in all the permitting, the access to their infrastructure, etc. So in the end, we need a partner committed to want to do that. And of course, there's constraints. We need a, a reasonable amount of size in the area, etc. But we're fundamentally willing to provide the capital to do such a project. It would not be that. It's more that we just need them to support it, accommodate it. There will, of course, be the, the disruption of construction, but it would take you know roughly a year and we'd be in production with quite a novel structure. It's something we hope to do soon. And you're willing to put up the money? Yes, we are. We are willing to put Why up the money. Why are people not biting your hand off for this? It's not a small thing to ask somebody to do a major construction and, and renovation. Even, for example, these structures weren't built to accommodate this. So you have to do some things structurally and internally to bear the weight. When you have a bunch of produce on your rooftop, you have you know possibly millions of kilograms, depending on the scale, of additional weight on your structure that you weren't built for. So it's a major distraction. I think people have had other priorities, particularly during COVID when retail was under attack. But my hope is that with how well Dubai is doing now, that maybe this will be a, a new opportunity for the years ahead. 30 seconds. What would that mean for those of us grabbing a salad or something inside a wall? What would it do for, for again, cost of living is what we're talking about? Well, I mean, it would similarly be at a much lower cost than imports. So your cost would be like you're seeing, and I believe you've bought our produce at the stores now, massively lower cost than what you paid before importing product from Europe or Morocco or other place of that quality level. But we'd be able to supply that right here within the city. And of course, for example, if you were in one of the malls nearby and they have retailers downstairs, what you're buying downstairs would be from the farm within the structure. Uh, not to mention, you can do neat collaborations, for example, with a retailer or with a, uh, a F&B, a grocery store or a, a restaurant. So there's a lot of opportunity. And again, we'll still be supplying from our core farms out in Alain, you know, strawberries, uh, leafy greens, a wide variety of products. So over time, more of your plate will hopefully be supplied locally. Sky Kurtz is the founder and the chief executive of Pure Harvest Smart Funds, speaking to us not just about what they're doing in Saudi Arabia, a massive deal that they have signed there to grow produce in the kingdom, but also what could be possible in urban farming here in Dubai. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Indeed it is, where we talk all things second passports now. Uh, a total and a story coming out of 
as Rich was saying, Cyprus, which has got us thinking and asking for a bit of uh, insight into this one. A total of uh, 3,609 citizenships. That's 53% of the second passports that were secured via the Cyprus Golden Visa Programme are reportedly now in question for being, quote, unlawfully naturalised. Let's focus on this and talk about uh, visa visa programmes and uh, citizen by investment programmes of the world over. We're going to do that with the founder and the managing partner of Passport Legacy, uh, the UAE headquarters uh, here. Geoffrey Hensler joins us live here in studio. Geoffrey, thanks so much indeed for your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me here, Tom. Um, Let's talk about this specific case first and foremost the Cyprus Golden Visa program um, a citizen by a citizenship by investment program um, why is it gone so badly wrong in Cyprus they definitely had a few very very golden years what Cyprus was saying was that if you invest 2 million euros into our real estate market, in return, we will give you citizenship. Now, the due diligence that they have conducted on its individual applicants would have definitely or could have been definitely done better Mm. and more in detail. However, back in the days or back when the program was open, they definitely let one or the other bad apple in. Now, What Al Jazeera newspaper did then, they investigated the the entire citizenship by investment program. They were already, Cyprus was already quite under pressure by the European Union because you were able to get European citizenship within three months only. Mm. And some people were definitely against that. And when Al Jazeera then came out with this massive uh, newspaper report of where they really tested the Cypriot government, they checked how easy it is to actually get citizenship. That's when things went down. That's Mm. an interview and the and a complete show that can be watched on YouTube as well. In terms of, I mean, from you and and your team at Passport Legacy as well, what are the challenges when working with governments like the Cypriot government or other governments that are offering citizenship by investment programmes at the moment? Is it quite a rigorous process for you to work with them as well? Definitely, but our main responsibility is definitely to make due diligence checks on the applicants that want to work with us before we even send their applications for due diligence to the individual governments. Now, the governments itself, they are definitely pro-business, so they want to attract a lot of investors in order to get their second passports. Some of them are a little bit more and some of them are a little bit less keen on acquiring a lot of numbers of individual citizens applying for their programs. But we just try to balance it between the investor that wants to have it done within a certain amount of timeline, but also respect, of course, the guidelines and the requirements from the individual governments in order to approve such applicants. We know that the popularity and the demand for second passports and such programs is growing the world over at the moment. We'll talk about the UAE and its place shortly. Just on the on the Cyprus question as well, can anything be done about this or is this going to be a reputational damage to the programme as a whole? The programme, I highly doubt that it will reopen again anytime in future. So it has been closed the moment that Al Jazeera newspaper and everything related to it, the report came out. It has been closed and from that day onwards 
people that were still in due diligence, a lot of them were rejected. So you had out of a sudden any small connection to anybody related to a, a PEP, mm -hmm. a politically exposed person. We've seen a lot, a lot of rejections during that time. And they tried to do that, obviously, to save their reputation a little bit and show the European Union that, no, we're actually not like that. You know, we so always... Question then, I mean, and there will be other countries. We know that the, the UAE passport is one that is in high, high demand at the moment. Is that still the case? Definitely, it's the highest ranking. Now, not only in terms of visa-free traveling, but also what value you actually get if you are a citizen of that country. So what lessons can be learned from the Cyprus issue at the moment for other countries looking at forwarding their citizenship by investment programs? Definitely compliance because the people that obtain a second passport, they mainly look for two or three different factors. They say, I'm from a country that has no great visa-free access around the world. I'm from a country where if I go to the United States, for example, once I obtain the visa, I'm stuck in the immigration for two hours. They're questioning me, for example. And what the people are looking for is for a country that eliminates their travel issues as well as of a country where they can say and stand there with pride and say, I'm a citizen of that specific country. Wherever I travel, I'm welcomed. Inflationary pressures the world over at the moment, rising inflation, we've seen interest rates also fluctuating. We've also seen geopolitical issues in the heart of Europe as well. Is that driving demand at the moment? Definitely. If you look in the news, you open the first newspaper and you think the world is going down, right? We've seen so many issues, especially from countries where we see a lot of demand, such as Lebanon, such mm. as Pakistan, such as, of course, Russia. Most of them are now not allowed to apply for any programs anymore since the issue started. But even from the United States, I mean, you know, the taxation issues are rising and rising and people do look for a plan B. So any issues that are happening in the world, every time something like that happens, happens, we see an increase in demand mm. of second citizenships and visas. And finally, we've got, what have we got? We've got about 30 seconds left with you, Jeffrey. If, if we can just uh, very quickly talk about the UAE Golden Visa Programme. We often talk about how successful that has been. Does it continue to be a success? We think so, because the Golden Visa in the UAE and the country itself, you will not find many other countries in this world where you can be here at a 0% taxation, in a safe haven, with a great system in place, uh, fantastic restaurants and schools and healthcare and everything related to it, while the real estate market pricing here is still way below major cities such as New York, London, LA, etc. So we definitely think there will be a growing demand for that in the future as well. Obviously, keeping Passport Legacy busy at the moment Definitely. as well. Quite right, too. Long may that continue in 2023. Jeffrey Hensler is the founder and the managing partner of Passport Legacy's UAE HQ. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.